This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Shalom and welcome to Practical Spirituality here at Asia Torah in the Old City of Jerusalem overlooking the Temple Mount. Please join the Yom Tov Media Club, YomTovMediaClub.com, and help get the word out from these classes. Today's subject we're discussing, it comes from uh, Mrs. Beth Baker from Cleveland, Ohio. And she asked a question that, you know, God's expecting a tremendous amount from us. You know, we've got 60, 613 commandments, which breaks into 55,000 laws. And, you know, it keeps you pretty busy. And so the, and, and, it's, and it's adamantly, you know, compelling us to fulfill these commandments. Yet at the same time, we're expected to work. Well, work takes a lot of time. And for many people, working eight hours is just the beginning. And now that we have smartphones, working eight hours is like a slacker. So, so how are we all supposed to get done what God expects from us with work? Now, I'd like to start with the, uh, with the Pirkei Avos, the ethics of our fathers. Um, it's actually this week, every week for these seven weeks is accustomed to learn one of the parshas, one of the chapters of Pirkei Avos. And so we generally do it after Minchan Shabbos. And this is the second week. And in the second chapter, in the second uh, halacha of the Mishnah, in the second Mishnah, it says, uh, Ram Gamliel, the son of Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, says, Torah study is good together with an occupation. Meaning, you should, Torah study is good with working. You want to be learning Torah, and I imagine fulfilling the mitzvahs of the Torah, with work. You want to, work, you want to be working. And then it says, for the exertion of them both makes sin forgotten. The exertion of them both makes sin forgotten. What does that mean? You don't have time. There's no time to sin because you're so busy fulfilling the Torah's mitzvahs and learning the Torah. And you're busy working. So who has time for sins? Good reason to keep teenagers busy. And the next is, um, and then it goes even further. It says something very strong, which would be, this is something that the rabbis of our generation would have to answer. And that is, uh, it says that all who exert themselves for the community, sorry, all Torah study that is not joined with work will cease in the end. The to- meaning the Torah study will wind up Ceasing, whatever that means. The Hebrew in there is uh, anyone who, who learns Torah but does not work. Sofa betela. In the end, it will be nullified. The Torah they learned will be worthless. That's pretty scary. Betela. I mean, that's strong language. The English was nicer. Cease could mean a lot of things. Here it says betela, butel. It means just ceased to exist, you know, gone, didn't, didn't go anywhere. Pretty scary thought. And, uh, and then it goes even further and says, Vigoreret avon, and, and will lead to sin. <laughs> Taurus, if you're learning Torah and you're not working, you're going to be sinning in the end. It's obviously not to be taken literally, right? Definitely to be taken literally. 
all Torah you hear from our, from either the Chumash or the Sages is to be taken literally. Does it have many other meanings? Yes, but right. it, but we have a principle that 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 anything you learn in Torah never goes that far from the actual theme. I mean, if it's it's stating a very clear statement, it never goes too far from there. Now, you could have a measure really far from there. Like, you could have something that's really far from what's being said. A teaching, like, there's a lot of teachings about the Exodus that are way out there. You know, like, trees, fruit trees growing as the Jews are moving through the split sea. And, and they're, they're like, and it was like glass. You could see, like, fish through it. And, and uh, it was like, there were, you could, like, I don't know, there was, like, Whatever, all kinds of funky stuff going on there with during the Exodus, and that's way off. So you can be sure that whatever is written in the Torah is what happened, and all the stuff that's way far away from there is, and many of them are completely contradicting. So they can't both be true. I mean, you can't have two contradictory things happening at the same exact time in in mitziut in in experience. So whatever they they, they in, we never go far from what's being said. So the bottom line is Torah is meant to be with work. Now, now here's something amazing. And that is the iceberg commandment. Do you know what the iceberg commandment is of the whole Torah? you know what an iceberg commandment is? Iceberg commandment, if I can draw an iceberg. Do we have any pens here? There's one. You can draw an iceberg. Let's say this is like, you know, like... Let's say that's like... 10,000 feet iceberg. Where's the surface of the water? Right there. Okay? So you see a couple hundred foot iceberg, you're like, oh, look at that cute iceberg. Let's say you're on a cruise to Alaska and you see an iceberg. What a cute little iceberg. I wouldn't mind living on that iceberg for a day or two, camp out on the top or something. What you don't see is what's underneath. So an iceberg commandments, when you see a cute and sweet commandment that looks fun enough and more or less friendly, and later you discover what's really involved. So an iceberg commandment is, the ultimate iceberg commandment of the whole Torah is the very first commandment of the whole Torah. What's the first commandment of the Torah? To be fruitful and multiply. You know why God made that the first commandment? He figured when you'd read that one, you would keep reading. <laughs> Every story's got to start with a good start. So, so it's to be fruitful and multiply. Now that's it. Looks like a fun enough commandment. Everyone seems to be interested in that. You know, I mean, just go to town. Everything seems to be one fashion store after the other. Everything's either a fashion store, or a bank to pay for it, or a restaurant to to meet people at, or a pub or something. You know, they, people take this one. People like this commandment. So, anyway, I mean, all the rules have changed with birth control, but originally it was supposed to be some kind of guarantor for women to not be left completely abandoned into their 30s plus. You know, they, they, the commandment was also very important for, for uh, meaning that whole part of life was actually supposed to be a protectorant for, for females. Um, no one realized what birth control was going to mean for the, for the world of the females for that half of our human species. Anyway, the, um, but when you actually go into it, so you, you can't go into it without a spouse. You've got to get married. Because even though, even though physiologically it's possible to produce children without marriage, but the, 
but the children will not come out good, says the statistics. Um, the children raised by two committed parents come out very differently. Now, it's not that there aren't individuals that come from one-parent families or even no-parent families, meaning like foster home kids, that became some of the best people that ever existed, those exist. But when you look at the large perspective of the actual stats, um, it's, it's a disaster. It's a disaster to not have two parents, which means you have to have marriage. Well, marriage is super complicated. And in order to create marriage, you need to deal with tons of Torah, tons of Torah. There's a lot of Torah involved in marriage. And the Torah that's involved in marriage is, uh, I mean, first of all, you can't get someone into marriage. You can't get them out. You got to have first the exit set up properly. So the first tractate of the marriage tractates, there's six of, about six of them, maybe more. I forget the exact number. But the first one's called Gitten, which means how to get out of marriage. Because you can't get someone into something without explaining how to get out of it. You know, and, they, and so that's uh, divorce. There's a whole tractate of Talmud of, ha- of how divorce is, uh, is handled. The, um, then there's marriage. You know, how, do, how do you bind two people together? Which is not just physically, but also spiritually. How do you, how do you create a contract? That will that will uh, fuse two souls together. What do you what do you got to do to fuse souls together? And that that's a lot of information there. A lot of a lot of, of Torah is involved in that. And and then you've got the uh, and then you've got the first feminist document in history. What's it called? Ksuva, very good. The Ksuva, the or in. For Sephardim or conservative reform, it's called Ketuba, which is the first ever feminist document. It, it actually protects the female in case, in case the male turns out to be a bum or, or he skips town or he, uh, or he dies or, or he just uh, divorces her. Um, it's her recourse, it's, and it takes care of her livelihood so that the estate will pop, properly pay for her. To uh, to survive after that, and there's no marriage without that. In fact, even married couples, if they lose their ketubah, can't even stay under the same roof without a um, until one's written up. Meaning, if they literally lose it, it they have to write up a quickie uh, ketubah just to sleep in the same house that night. So it's uh, you know it's we take this stuff very very seriously to protect the protect the females. Um, and that's another whole tractate, and um, and and then of course, if God forbid, the, there's there's infidelity. There's a tractate called Sota, which deals with infidelity. Because what do you do when there's been a breach in the contract uh, because of uh, infidelity? And there's a whole tractate on that. So there's like you understand, there's a lot of terror involved with this one commandment of being fruitful and multiplying. And then there's all the words that are being spoken. He's spe- the man says certain things under there. She has to agree, obviously, but, but he's the one who says stuff under the chuppah. And she's not going under there unless she's agreeing. Um, and, but then you got a tractate called Nadarim, which goes into all, like Neder, all the, all the, how words are binding and how, 
all those laws. So there's a ton of Torah around being fruitful and multiplying. Like, being fruitful and multiplying is cute enough, but it just starts getting filled in. The iceberg gets filled in with tons of Torah. But here's the crazy part. Ready for the crazy part? The crazy part is you actually start having kids. And what's crazy about having kids is is you got to feed the kids. You have to feed kids. And if you got to feed kids, that means you got to what? Got to work. Well, if you got to work, so then you know, there's a lot there's a lot of stuff that goes on in the world of work. And you've got all kinds of uh, laws that come into effect. There's contract law. There's you're also going to have to house your kids. So there's real estate law. There's there's um, in making a living. There's there's like all kinds of discrepancies that wind up taking place between worker and employer, and there's just tons of law there. And all of that civil law is is listed in the, the Torah in depth. There's a tractate for uh, for any like uh, personal damages in the in the Babakama, all the personal damages called. They're called the gates. Bubba means, in Yiddish it means grandma, but in Aramaic it means gates. There's three gates. There's uh, civil damages laws. Those are the um, Bubba Kama. Then there's uh, just property property law, which is the Bubba Mitzia, how to deal with movable property. And then there's housing your family or your pro- factory or whatever you've got in real estate is Bubba Basra, the final gate which goes into all those laws. Now, all of this is coming from be fruitful and multiply. But our Torah that says you got to be fruitful and multiply is the same Torah that says you got to get a job. And so you're going to have to work. And it's going to bring, meaning, meaning the, the whole Talmud comes out of this. Now, here's the crazy, here's, there's a couple crazy thoughts to have about this. One of them is, Separation of church and state. Does it sound like Judaism separating church and state? No, zero separation of church and state. These are, these are, they're not separated at all. This is, this is going to be, um, you know, it, it is totally mixed in. But the funny thing is, how can you separate them? It, the, only, the only reason anyone would be crazy enough to have children, besides obviously the animal instinct to be, to reproduce, but the only reason anyone would be crazy enough to do that would be that somehow there would be a greater good as a result. You know, other than, again, there's a, people have maternal instincts, people have paternal instincts. But beyond those instincts, there's, like there's got to be a greater good. And how would you know there's any greater good without God saying that there's something worth living for? Well, if there's something worth living for, there's something worth having kids for. And that I could maybe impress upon my kids. And this is why parents get so freaked out when their kids aren't interested in what they believe is worth living for. You know, and all of you kids in this room, we even got a mother-daughter duo here, love to test mothers and fathers. Yeah, you have kids? You know, kids? Yeah. The, um, but uh, raise your hand. Raise your hand if you ever tested your parents. You tested your parents' value system. Anyone here test your parents' value system? That's, it's, it's cruel and unusual to do that because 
Because really the only reason that your parents, and especially now that we have birth control, the only reason your parents had you, the only reason was to impart those values. That's it. That's it, because you're nothing but a liability. Okay? No offense, but you're, you're, you're a major liability to your parents and, and to society. So there must be some greater good of why it is that your parents brought you to the world. And that greater good is those values. But when we, and so, but teenagers are just cruel and unusual when they test their parents' values because the parents go into this state of mind, which is a direct quote from Rebecca when she had twins. She didn't know she had twins. She thought she had some schizo baby who was like, you know, like totally against her values because every time she passed idolatry, it would like go wild and, and try to like get out. And every time she passed a synagogue or a place of God worship, the, uh, it would try to get out. And so she thought she had a schizo baby only to find out not such good news that she has twins and one of them's real, you know, radically anti-God uh, being that will ultimately become the father of Western culture, which I know a lot of you don't think of Western culture as anti-God. And well, maybe since the Poway shooting, you, you see what Western culture can breed. You know, if you, if you take God out of it, you know, you're going to have anti-God coming out of Westerners for sure. But anyway, Westerners are no friend of God. They, but you can, imp- you can influence them. You know, they're influenceable towards God. You certainly want to start young. You know, they're using it now as a platform for prayer, a moment of, what are they saying, a minute, a, a minute of silence to reinstitute that into synagogues. As, into, sorry. Reinstitute that into public schools so that maybe there'll be less people growing up with these kind of anti-God feelings when, they're, when they'll be capable of causing you know, damage to humanity. Um, I'm just like rambling at this point, but the... <laughs> And I hope you guys are with me, but anyway, but the point is, is that when Rebecca had the schizo baby inside her, not knowing she had twins, she said the words, Lama ze anoichi. Lama, why? Ze, this, meaning this situation. Anoichi. Now, anoichi is a weird word, but, and the whole sentence doesn't mean anything. Why this I? Why this I? Uh, or why thusly am I? Or, but the, what it really means is, 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 I'm not sure how art school translates it, but it's what, why am I doing this? Like, why did I bother? Like, if, if this kid isn't interested in my values, so what was the point? What was the point of it all? And every parent who's had their teenagers test their value system has this feeling of like, why did I do this? Like, why did I have sleepless, nauseous, Nine months, and why did I have to work mm, around the clock to pay for a kid who's just going to throw everything that the whole reason I had the kid in the first place to throw in the garbage can? Like, why did I do that? What am I living for? Basically, it means, what am I living for? And there's an answer, by the way. A lot of parents love to, like, kind of use that complaint and leave it at that, meaning they just eat their hearts out and suffer. 
But you're actually supposed to answer the question. Meaning, the question, what am I living for? I mean, if, if the, the reason I had these kids was for, to impart these values for another generation of goodness, you know, like the way I like to say it is uh, when people see how many kids I had, because I'm, I'm, I'm a radical environmentalist, I'm like a hardcore environmentalist, so why do I have so many kids? Radical environmentalists shouldn't have any kids, you know, as many of them don't. And the, uh, so I say, when my friends, who are also big environmentalists, that I grew up with, when they say, why do you have so many kids? I say, I say because when you're, when, you're, um, when you're creating more of a problem, meaning more consumers, when you're creating more of a problem, so I understand why you would want to have fewer children, but when you're creating the solution, meaning the whole reason you're having these kids is to solve the Earth's crisis, when you're creating more solutions, so then you should have as many as possible. And as one person said to an old lady when she said, how many already when she saw all his kids? He said, till six million. So we are here to create solutions out of our children. And when the kids test the values and you say to yourself, Lama Zalanoichi, why am I, why do I even bother? Why am I hassling my, like, why am I ruining my life for these kids who have no interest anyway in the values? You have to answer the question. Well, yeah, what are you living for? And the answer is, unfortunately, for so many kids, sorry, for so many parents, the answer for so many parents is, I'm living for social acceptance. Meaning, I got into all, I got into all this because it's true, but in the end, I've lost sight. I've, I've strayed from the formula and now I'm paying the price. And what I'm doing all this for is to basically keep up with the Schwartzes, look good in the eyes of my observant community. To be observant in any observant community is if there's a tremendous amount of, of you know, looking good involved for the community in details that I'd leave, I'm just going to leave out of a live feed because it's just more than I, we can handle here. There's a tremendous amount of details of what it takes to be considered on the up and up in an observant community. And we all live in those communities because you've got to be able to walk to shul, which makes us all have to be nuclearized. Like, we have to be around this nucleus called the shul because we don't drive on Shabbat. So we're all, we're like, we're all in each other's laundry. And we don't want our children to embarrass us. And so our children get this weird message that this is not about truth, but this is about looking good. And deep down, there's a big issue here. And what the big issue is, and this is the scariest thing I'll say today, is that there's a world we're all going to when we die it's the other side of this, meaning where do you think this world comes from? It's this, it's the, we're on the other side of a spiritual realm. There's, there's this gigantic matrix of spirituality vibrating to the end of like those, like those toys you see at checkout stands where it's got a flashlight with these little pixels of fiber optic things that kids will buy with the color on the end. You know, we're, we're the color on the end. Our whole physical world is the color on the end of a very technicolored reality, vibrational bliss that exists on the other side of this. And 
that's called, it's got a term, it's called Olam Ha-Emes. The Olam Ha-Emes, the world of emet, of truth. There's a world called the world of truth. And guess what? You go to the world of truth and you get to carry with you to experience, you know, like if I experience this water on the edge of the vibrational thing, here we go. Okay, you know, not like a beer or something. There's nothing that special. It's water. It's kind of tasteless, especially this water. Um, the um, it's there was nothing special about that. But if I could taste this water in the matrix vibration where it comes from the technicolor realm, then I would see it. I would see the taste. I would hear it. It would have a sound because. It is vibrational. If it exists, I promise you, it's made of protons and neutrons and electrons that are vibrating. Well, vibrations have sounds. And so I can't hear the water. But I can, yes, hear it when I get to the vibrational realms. In the Olamayamas, I can actually get to the true water, which is, you know, going to have sound to it. It's going to have sight to it. That's why, what's the word synesthesia is where you see the sights? You see the sounds. Mount Sinai, you can see the sounds. And, and so that's the Olamayamas. We got a taste of the Olamayamas, the world of truth at Sinai. And so guess what you get to experience in the Olamayamas? You get to experience whatever you do in this world. But here's the scary part that I said. This is going to be the scariest part of the class. Whatever you do, Be'emes. Meaning, our motives behind what we do is whether you get to transfer the points of everything you do. Your mo- I'm going to say that again. Your motivation. What's motivating you? What's, what's behind it all? The intention of it all. That's what gives you transfer rights for everything you do in this world for the LMIMS to the world of vibrational frequency. That's an important thing to know about. And it's easily forgotten when you deal with societal pressures in an observant community. Because in an observant community, it's very easy to lose sight on why you're doing what you're doing because you really... Not that you wouldn't do it anyway, but there's just this fear that your kids are going to expose you, are going to expose you by their misbehavior. Meaning not behaving perfect. I don't say misbehavior, but not behaving the way the community would expect. Now, how high are those standards for the teen? How high are those standards for the average teenager? Higher, medium, or super high, especially in certain societies. If you raise a kid in Mayasharim, the standards are considered more or less normal. If you raise a kid in the United States of Asov, yeah, you 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 are talking about. Massive standards. And the kids are like, what the hell? Like, how did I win this lottery? Growing up in a observant home, you know, while passing billboards. I once, I once lived in America for like a few months. That was all I could take. It was supposed to be a few years, but I had an allergic reaction to America and left. The, um, but I had all these little kids at the time, like really little kids. Like we had, a, we had like, I don't know, they were like maybe four and down, you know, little ones. And you know, they could barely see out the window in their, in their baby seats in the car. But what would happen is I'd pull up to red lights. This is in L.A. Pull up to red lights. But when you got near the red light, there were bus stops. And the bus stops had billboards 
and the buses had billboards. And they were all, you know, displaying Asaph's best, you know. And I refused to pull up to them. And so I would wait for lights, like four or five, sometimes six car lengths back. Cars are yelling at people, you know, they're like, what the hell, man? They're honking their horns and coming to fill in the space. And, you know, some people were kind of stuck, wondering what's going on, you know. I would just let them honk because my kids aren't going to see that billboard. You know, not that my kids would have any ability to understand what they were looking at. They were tiny kids. But they're not seeing that. Like, that's too big a price to pay. Like, I don't mind teaching Torah in America, but not at the risk of infecting my children with Asaph. You know, with, with Westernism. And, and so, our kids have this massive standard. It's way beyond what could ever be expected of a teenager with teenage hormones and teenage everything that teenagers have. And meanwhile, us as parents, they, kids sense parents' fear. Because the whole thing about being a child is children want to know they're safe. That's our job as parents is let your kids know they're safe. So kids learn at a very, very young age to sense their parents' feeling of safety and security. If the parents are feeling safe, the kids feel safe. And our job as parents is to help our children feel safe. But the kids on a very pre-verbal level understand our fear way before, you know, they mean, they know when we're afraid. Our kids get that because our job, their, their thing is I'm a vulnerable kid. So my only thing that could possibly give me safe would be my parents. And so before the kids got enough advanced mind, you know, their brains advanced enough to know about real danger, their job is to just read our faces, read our vibration, read our, our interaction with our environment, that kids are reading us. And, and even actually the truth is that I, I had a daughter who I still have this daughter, but, but yeah, she's great. But she, um, when she was in the womb, it was during, uh, it was during the, um, we had this prime minister who was allowing for like terrible terrorism, like bombs were blowing up all over Jerusalem. Remember there were buses blowing up. What year was this? Like 2001. I forget the name of the guy. I think he was killed actually. Oh, so I know his name. Rabin? Was it Rabin? Yeah. Oh, it was Rabin. When Rabin was prime minister, there were a lot, a lot, a lot of bus bombings going on everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, it was like daily. And I missed every single one of them because I teach at Aish. And the, you know, Aish, the old city, the Jewish quarter is a non... Thank God, in all my years, there's never been a terrorist attack in the old city, in the Jewish quarter. Lots in the old city, never in the Jewish quarter. So... Yeah, you wouldn't think this is the safest place in Israel during times of terror, but apparently it is, because we're, we're like one of the few neighborhoods that, that thank God, Bliana. So, anyway, um, she was in the womb, and there were, you know, my, my wife's like shopping around town, and, and every once in a while, boom, boom, and, you know, and people are like running by her, bleeding, and she's like helping people and like, you know, first on site, you know, my wife was first on site multiple times that year. And, um, anyway, that daughter, when she grew up, any loud noises sent her into a panic because, because my wife experienced these, the daughter felt the her caretaker, the fear in the bloodstream and the whole, you know, you know, it has a lot of fear has a lot of toxicity to it in our system and our musculature and it goes in, you know, that's post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, is, 
is it's in the it's in the lining of the body. My seminars once in a while I'll get someone who has PTSD, hoping my seminar is going to do it for them, and and it certainly is amazing with certain trauma, but but there's trauma that's in the tissues. And that's, you know, that requires other things, you know, they, which is now, you know, there's a lot of plant medicines that are being studied now in Johns Hopkins and UCLA and uh, New York University and England and Israel. Um, these things that, that were thought of as 1960s, you know, hippie drugs that are now being tested to be seemingly the number one uh, 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 treatment for uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. You can look that up online if you'd like to learn more about that. Meanwhile, our children, our teenagers have a tremendous amount. I think I learned this from you, by the way. I'm, in fact, I did learn this from you. Um, Rabbi Neckemeyer just walked in. You, you, you want to you join me up here uh, for the live feed? No, I want to talk to you about bikes with you. I just went to the shops and tell you what everyone... Oh, I want to hear what... Rabbi, else is not Oh, really? <laughs> anyway, go ahead, please, please. anyway, but what I learned from Rabbi Nekemar years ago is that our kids sense our, des- our need to look good in the eyes of society. Therefore, our kids are reading our fear. And they're saying, hey, it's not every kid's going to do this, only the Avram Avinus. You know, we, we all hope, like, our kids are, we hope our kids are genetically from Yitzchak. We don't like the kid that destroys our idols. <laughs> You know, when every woman at the hotel right now is praying about their pregnancy, they're like, please, God, let it be a tzaddik. Like, let's be straight about this. What you really want is a Yitzchak. You don't want phone calls home from the principal for your Abraham child, meaning your daughter is going to bust up all convention, you know, and, like, break up all the lies of our societies and stuff. But but we also, you, there's such a thing as having an Avram Avinu genetic child who's there to break up your idolatry. And what's the biggest idolatry for us is more important what our society says about us, our observant community says, than what we're actually doing the commandments for. And so what happens is God sends us this magical Abraham kid, destroys our idols, we ask Rivka's question, and then we, meaning, what am I living for? And then we answer, I'm living for Amos, not for my community. And then all of a sudden, my whole shift I start shifting in the way I do my mitzvahs and also how I relate to the kids because it's no longer out of fear and that they're going to make me look bad. I say, to hell with that. I'm just going to serve God with white fire service and I'm going to make sure at least I don't wind up with nothing upstairs because I was so busy trying to, you know, look good for everybody. I'm going to do things for the right reasons and for truth. And you know what? Whatever, whoever that kid is who was skidding out, who was there, really God just sent that kid to wake me up. So thank you for waking me up. That kid's going to figure her, his or herself out. When they figure his or herself out, they'll work it out themselves how they're going to do things. But best thing, way anyway for a kid to work themselves out is to see their parents are emistic, are truthful, are honest in their service of God. So yes, we are supposed to lived terror with work we're supposed to be involved in the physical world and and uh and i this class had many themes so i just gonna leave it at that um yes torg has to be with work i didn't explain why we'll talk about that another time but certainly we all got to be real truthful in how we serve god may we be blessed amen, amen. Shalom. please join the club yomtobmediaclub.com shalom
Okay. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.